couple of weeks ago, Jules and I were on the tube going into London, and there were planned engineering works on the Met Line. And so we had to change at Wembley Park onto the Jubilee. And people, so that meant people who would normally have been on both lines were now being kind of squeezed into one. And uh, so although it wasn't exactly midweek rush hour, uh, it was busier than normal. And there were no seats, but we were perched on those little bits that sort of you can sort of half sit, half stand on, on some tubes. And we were kind of sat, we were on opposite sides of the carriage. And at one stop, at one stop, Jill's decided she was going to come across and join me on my side of the carriage. But as she was doing so, the tube set off again, which sent Jules half flying across the carriage until she landed up, whacked against my chest with my arm around her. And the guy next to me uh, smiled in amusement at what had just happened. Personally, I just think he was jealous that such a beautiful woman should throw herself at me on the tube. And maybe he was also a bit more surprised that neither of us actually let the other one go after it. So, so I just sort of turned around and said, it's okay, mate, she's my wife. But while we were on the couch, there wasn't much for Jules to easily hold on to. So she held on to me throughout the journey, which is no real hardship. I do like cuddling up to my wife, even more than I enjoy embarrassing her by telling you that I like cuddling up to her. But, yeah... We're all probably familiar with that set. We are, most of us live near London. We probably use the tube at least occasionally. We've known that experience of not being able to get a seat and the importance of holding on to those straps or to the bars and knowing that if you don't hold on, you'll be knocked about and unable to stand. Well, that's an important part of the message that John and Jesus are offering to the church at Thyatira. And to us this morning, hold on, hold on firmly to what you have received. We have been spending a few weeks in these seven letters, which can be found near the beginning of Revelation, the last book of our Bible. And these letters are written to seven churches in the area that was then called Asia Minor. We call it Turkey. Uh, Although they were all in the same area around the same time, just like different churches today, they were all good at some things and they were all not so good at other things. And they were all a bit different and they faced different challenges. But they were all tiny minorities in an area which was extremely loyal to Caesar and to the Roman Empire, which ruled the world at this stage in history. And today we come to the longest of the seven letters, and oddly it's written to the least significant of the seven cities. Thyatira didn't really feature on many people's radar. It didn't have the economic prosperity of Ephesus. It didn't have the beauty of Smyrna. It didn't have the political or cultural importance of Pergamum. But Thyatira was kind of like an industrial town, a manufacturing town. It was the centre of the textile industry and coloured dyes. And we don't read about Thyatira elsewhere in the Bible, but it is mentioned in passing once. Lydia, a woman who was the first person we read of coming to faith in Christ in Europe, was said to be a dealer in purple cloth or fine fabrics 
from Thyatira. It also had a major smelting works for the manufacture of copper and bronze, which is kind of reflected in the image Jesus presents at the start as the one with blazing fire and feet like burnished bronze. And it was also the home of a number of trade guilds. And this was where industries would come together, where networks would form, where deals would get done. And if you wanted to get on in business or even just keep your business afloat, really you needed to be part of this scene. But it meant a lot of banquets, a lot of toasting different gods associated with that particular industry. It meant more than a little sexual immorality. And that's the background to this letter. And let's be honest, it's kind of one of the tougher ones to read. I often mention to you how our brains are actually wired to more readily spot threat or danger or negativity than to notice the positives. That's why if 50 people say something really good to you, you will remember the one person who said something bad. So as we approach this morning's passage, I'm pretty sure I know which parts your attention was drawn to. I'm pretty sure it wasn't the bits about their love, their faithfulness, their servants, their endurance, the progress they're making. It will have been the bits about Jezebel, her suffering, her children. Am I right? And I see some of that in different Bible translations that in different sort of Bible translations that I look as I consult them for sermon preparation and the titles that they give to the church. One of the translations I consult calls Thyatira the corrupt church, which I'm not actually that sure is entirely fair. Nonetheless, it isn't the kind of stuff we're comfortable with that we want to read and reflect on. It's not kind of the image of God we want to dwell on, is it? There's a couple of reasons from this, for this, and they're linked. One is that we're not actually really that familiar with this kind of literature. You know, Revelation was a mix of three types of literature. There was letter, prophecy, and apocalypse. And we're kind of familiar with letters. Our letters look a bit different, but we kind of get that. And we may not know quite as much about prophecy, but yeah, we, we see prophecy really elsewhere in the Bible. We don't really have anything in our culture that is really quite like the apocalyptic literature of the Jewish world at this time. And it was highly symbolic and it needs to be treated as such. And a significant part of it was this image of a warrior god rising into battle to fight for the righteous and to conquer the forces of evil. And the other aspect is that we do not tend to read this from the same position as John and the disciples in the seven cities to whom he was writing. Apocalyptic literature tended to be written by people who were on the wrong end of history or on the wrong end of the sword. I recognize some of you may have lived in places where it could be dangerous to believe in Jesus at least part of your life but probably not quite that many of us have and that can shape how we view this stuff 
So what I want you to do is I want you to take this next bit in the really light, flippant way it's intended, okay? Because I remember the night of 1st of May 1997. The BBC exit poll came in declaring that Tony Blair was set to win a landslide. And through the night, one big-name government minister lost their seat after another. You know, the this phrase, were you up for Portillo, became such a common question that it became the title of a book. And I remember that night, how my friends and I celebrated. At last, the evil Tories had been vanquished. Things could only get better. I know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. Or last week, there were many celebrating that we had finally left the EU. We're taking back control. We had finally shaken off the shackles of the evil, bureaucratic, unelected empire. We kind of celebrate this stuff. And we live in a liberal democracy. We're amongst the freest people on earth. We are perhaps amongst the freest people who have ever lived. We might believe or not that the things we have voted for or whatever can make a significant difference for the better. But I didn't live my life under real threat of death from the Tories in the 90s. Just as however much we view the EU, they weren't killing us. In fact, one of the things that it done was stop us doing it. When we read Revelation, we need to bear in mind that we read it from a position where most of our lives are lived closer to the position of the empire that John's writing about than to the churches and the cities that he's writing about. And if we were in their position we might read this slightly differently. If we were in their position, we might want a God who's a bit more activist. I'm reminded of the scene in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe when the children first hear about Aslan, the lion, the true king of Narnia. And Susan, one of the children who's entered Narnia from this world, hears that Aslan is a lion. And she says, Oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And the response comes back, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. See, I want a God that's good. Who doesn't? But for a God to be good... He has to care about justice. He has to care about evil. He has to care about rescuing a world gone wrong. So this isn't the only or even the main image of of God presented in the New Testament. But it is possible in a bid to make our understanding of God good that we end up just making him safe. So what's going on in Thyatira? In a sense, some of what seems to be happening is not dissimilar to what we talked about in Pergamum last time. That there were some amongst them who didn't want to stand out 
differently on society. It was a bit inconvenient. It made life difficult. It was bad for business. So why bother? And, and But in Pergamum, there's a sense that they were just a small group who needed to be challenged. In Thyatira, there are signs that such people had gained prominence in the church, perhaps even rising to position of leadership, and they were claiming some kind of status among the community. They were describing themselves as a prophet, speaking for God in the community. And it's all couched in very symbolic language with a reference to an Old Testament story and an Old Testament character, and that character was Jezebel. In the Old Testament, Jezebel became a symbol for compromise and immoral practices. We read her story in 1 Kings during the time of Elijah. The king at the time is a guy called Ahab. He's married to Jezebel. He marries Jezebel to try to secure alliances with some of the people around him. And Jezebel rose to prominence in a way very few other Old Testament queens did. And she brought with her the gods of her land, and in particular one called Baal. And the prophets and priests of Baal were granted the same status as those of Yahweh, the God of Israel. But it wasn't that she tried to stop the people of Israel worshipping Yahweh. She just said, it was, she, you could do that, just don't get fanatical about it. You can go to your temple and worship Yahweh if you like, but leave it there. It doesn't have to shape everything else. And you can worship Baal too. How cool is that? And that's why Elijah, when he challenges the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18, he says to them, how long are you going to waver between two opinions? If Yahweh's God, worship him. If Baal's God, worship him. So it's not that you're choosing one over the other. It's just you're trying to constantly keep a foot in both camps. And that gives us a clue as to what's going on in Thyatira. Someone has got a degree of prominence in the church. Because the image Jezebel is used, it may have been a woman, but it need not necessarily have been so. And her approach is, by all means, worship God and follow Jesus. But don't get too extremist about it. Do you not think God would want your business to prosper? Well then, why make life difficult for yourself? Toast the other gods. It's only words after all. Tell Caesar he's Lord if you need to. Cross your fingers and it makes you feel better. It's only words. It doesn't mean anything. In short, worship God but leave him in church. It doesn't have to affect what you do the rest of the week. And it's easy to see how someone like this can rise to prominence. For a couple of reasons. One is... That in many ways, she's telling them what they want to hear. Most of us like to think we are rational people. We reckon our brains are in control. And every now and then, accidentally, our feelings get hold of the wheel and drive us off course. Actually... It's more accurate to say that our feeling brains are in the driving seat and our thinking brains trying to rest the wheel back. We are more inclined to accept as true what we want to believe. Think about it. When you open up your newspaper and there's a really bad story about someone, how 
easy is it to believe it if you don't like the person in the first place? And the same is true with faith. Just because somebody has reverend in their name doesn't just mean that what they say is automatically true. And I include the guy standing up here in that. Just because someone has letters before their name or after their name doesn't make it true. Doesn't make it false either. In some parts of the church there is an inverted snobbery which despises scholarship and that's wrong too. But just because somebody has a television broadcast or even owns their own TV channel or even flies their own private jet, it doesn't make it true. Selling paperbacks by the lorry load doesn't make it true. Being able to throw a few Bible verses behind what you say doesn't make it true. Because Satan was quite happy to use scripture to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. One of the most consistent features of the Bible narratives is how easy false prophets find it to get a hearing. Because they tell us what we want to hear. And most of the stuff that we encounter day by day is driven by markets, by advertising, by what sells. And what sells is what you want to hear. Now hear me right. Just as I'm not dismissive of scholarship, just I'm not dismissive of something just because it's popular. What I'm saying is that everything needs to be sifted, to be tested, to be weighed up. That's the problem Thyatira had. Whoever this Jezebel character was, she'd gain prominence or they'd gain prominence. Perhaps it was, and you know, perhaps actually one of the reasons, this is the main reason why I think she'd probably gain prominence is because she's one of the more successful members of the church. I mean, that's why they're part of the trade guild. The, most of the Christians came from the lower classes. They weren't involved in that whole world. It was the wealthy ones who, were, who, who needed that kind of world to work for them. And so... You know, they've perhaps been more successful and more affluent. They're more likely to be part of the guilds. And, you know, and, and perhaps it was one reason why on the surface they did so well. You know, they, well, look at them. They're very successful in other areas of life. It becomes harder to challenge. But it could easily become a cosy little club that didn't stand for anything. And if that's what their church had become, Chances are it wouldn't have outlasted any other temple in the area of Asia Minor. And if that was all that was happening, it would have been bad enough. But there may have been more than that. We read that there are some who have not learned the deep things of Satan, which appears to be linked to this Jezebel character. One of the earliest challenges the first church faced was an idea called Gnosticism. It was the kind of, it was a kind of, it was quite a wide ranging thing, but on a lot of levels it was kind of an overly spiritual type religion. You know, spiritual stuff is good, physical stuff is bad. And it popped up in certain different ways. Like there were those who tried to eliminate all their physical desires by punishing their bodies in quite cruel ways. But there was another side to it. 
there was kind of, which was almost the opposite extreme. It said the body is evil and all that matters is the spirit. So what you do with your body doesn't matter. It was almost like an extreme version of don't knock it till you've tried it. And it said, if you really want to defeat evil, you need to really know it. You need to experience it at its worst. So they're not just suggesting maybe a bit of compromise to make life easier. They're saying, throw yourself into it. Indulge fully. And because of your faith in Jesus, God will look after you. You'll be all right. Just go ahead. And it's not dissimilar to the temptation Jesus faced in the wilderness. Go on, throw yourself off the temple roof. You'll be okay. God will help you. But the truth is, our choices have consequences. Evil matters. And it's true that we all mess up. We all make mistakes. We all stand in the need of grace and love. But there can also be a willfulness that's ultimately destructive. We can become so ensnared in what we want to do that we refuse to listen to reason, to heed any warnings, And we can even silence our own conscience to the point that we fail to recognize something that is wrong. And it can be a very tragic affair when that happens. Because evil matters. God doesn't seek to guide us and instruct us because he wants to make you miserable. Because God likes to boss you around. It's because God wants all that's good for us. That's why he's calling us to a life of obedience. But we don't have to fall into that trap. If this morning we have something in our lives which we know is wrong, if you're heading down a path that's ultimately destructive, if you're still heading down that path thinking, it'll be okay, I can handle this, Other people wouldn't be able to deal with this, but I know what I'm doing. Perhaps this morning you need to heed the whispered warning of the Spirit to turn back. But I don't believe that Thyatira was a genuinely corrupt church. Many hadn't fallen for the teaching of Jezebel. Perhaps they were cowed by the fact that this person was successful. Perhaps it was because they'd managed to gain this prominence as a position. Maybe they'd got a bit of a title. But many had not fallen that way. There had been those who had lived in faith and love, who had served with perseverance, who had progressed, who had grown in faith, who did more than they did at first, who hadn't fallen under the spell of Jezebel's teaching. And to them he says, hold fast. You know the faith that you came to believe. You know that in Jesus Christ, God has loved you and given himself for you. You know that God revealed in Jesus Christ is the best deal you've got going. So trust him.
hold fast. It's the regular call of the New Testament. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes, Hold fast to the teachings we give you, whether in speech or in letter. In Hebrews, there's a couple of times we're told to hold firmly to the faith we profess or the hope we profess. Test everything. Just because someone is prominent, successful, popular, witty, good-looking, it doesn't mean they're right. Test everything and cling to the good, lest the bad pull you over. And if you do, he says, I will give you the morning star. We know this is Venus, which is a planet which is amongst the brightest objects in our night sky. He says, trust me, he says, I will be your light. I will be your guide. The morning star is one of the names for Christ himself. He will give us himself. And if we trust him, he will be with us every step in the way. And in turn, we can be his light in the darkness which surrounds us. Because the morning star isn't actually a star at all. It's not a light at all. It's simply reflected light on Venus. So keep on in faith and love. Keep on in good deeds that God prepared for us to do. Keep on serving with perseverance. And there will be times when it's not easy, when it feels unrecognized, when it feels forgotten, when we lose sight of why we do it. And there will be times when everybody else seems to be thinking, no, you should be listening to this guy or that woman. Hold on. Keep on keeping on. Because the one who is with us has eyes of burning fire. He sees us as we are. He knows we'll get it wrong sometimes. But that's okay because he sees our hearts. And if we hold on to him, he won't forget us. And will hold us lest we fall. So hold on. And hold fast. Grace and peace to you. Amen.